Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on December 30th, 2012. Today's message is titled, The Baptist is Coming to Mess Up Your Party, by pa- Pastor Isaac Whiting, and is based on scripture, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Please pray with me. Father God, we come to you humbly today, asking once again that you would lead us back to you. Lord, I do feel it today that my heart easily goes astray, goes the wrong way, and I want to come back to you. As you have done so many times in the past, we ask that you would speak your word to us today. We're all here looking for you and waiting for you, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you had yourself a merry little Christmas. The Christmas Eve service was fantastic. If you were not here, there were 200 people here, which was very surprising to me. I guess we should have the kids lead at the Christmas Eve service more often. And everyone sat up close to the front. And then, of course, I had a great Christmas, and I assume all of you did too. Did you have a good Christmas? You can raise your hand or nod your head or something. This is that wonderful time of year. We've gotten together with all of our friends and family. We have hopefully received some really good presents that we're still excited about. And there's more to come. We're in that in-between time between Christmas and New Year where a lot of people have time off, and it's just a good time. Yeah, there's still stuff that's wrong with the world, but things are pretty good. And then, of course, the Baptist has to come along and mess up your party. A Baptist really can mess up your party if you give them a chance. What comes after the Christmas story? In the Gospels, in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, what is it that comes after Jesus is born and the manger and the angels and the magi. Interestingly enough, it is John the Baptist in every gospel. And in fact, in some of the gospels, he comes right in the middle of the Christmas story or even really before it begins. John the Baptist, that crazy guy that we don't know what to do with. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't think that it's important enough to write down the Christmas story at all 
he leaves it out entirely, and he just begins with John the Baptist. This gives us a little bit different perspective on which stories are really the most important ones, doesn't it? The people who wrote these down, many of whom were with Jesus, thought that the story of John the Baptist was at least as important as the Christmas story itself, the story that we tend to make the most important in our culture. So why would that be? Why would they consider that story, the story of a crazy guy with hair shirts and a leather belt and uh, eating bizarre food, more important than the Christmas story itself? The reason is that the Gospel writers and the Bible clearly tell us that we cannot receive Jesus. We cannot, we're not able to understand the message of Jesus until we have understood the message of John. John is the one who came to bring, uh, bring a highway, to make a highway for Jesus so that we could see him, so that we could get to him. And without his message, we can't get to where Jesus is. I'm going to break this message down, the message of John, into three parts. The first part will be about the message that he spoke simply by who he was and by being alive in the way that he lived. And then the second and third parts will be about the things that John actually said. So who was John the Baptist? I've said he was a crazy man. I don't think that he actually was crazy. He was not mentally ill or anything like that. His story goes like this. Uh, his mother and father, his father was Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth, and sometimes we hear those names at Christmas time. I think we read some of their story a few weeks ago. And Zechariah was a priest, and you know he went to the temple for probably the one time in his life that he would actually serve in the temple itself. And an angel appeared to him, the angel Gabriel, the same angel who had appeared to Mary to tell her about the baby Jesus who would come. And the angel told Zechariah, who had no children because his wife could not have children, told Zechariah that he would have this baby, and he gave Zechariah some rules for this child. You're going to have a baby. You're going to name him John, even though no one in your family is named John. And this child is going to have some rules, essentially three rules. The first rule is that he can never eat or drink anything that comes from a grape. It is made out of grapes. might seem a little bit odd to us, but in the, the society that he was in, that meant that he couldn't eat with people almost ever. Everyone drank wine at nearly every meal, and they ate a lot of raisins. The second rule was that he could never be in the presence of a dead body. Another interesting rule. He could never be in the presence of a dead body, a dead human body, a corpse. And so that meant that he could never attend a funeral his whole life. Uh, big events, very important events, he couldn't be a part of. 
And the third rule, of course, the one that really marked him out so that anyone who saw him would think he was a little bit off, is that he could never, ever cut his hair. And this, of course, is the same rule we find applied to Samson in the Old Testament. So where do these rules come from? Uh, What's happening here is that Gabriel is giving Zechariah, for his son John, the rules of a Nazarite. The rules of a Nazarite. Uh, The law of the Nazarite is outlined in Numbers chapter 6, if you're interested. And what it was is a way that God had given the Israelites uh, to make a temporary vow of consecration to God. So for us, if we wanted to really have a time where we got closer to God, we might go away on a retreat, we might fast and pray for a certain period of time. Well, one of the ways that was given to the Israelites was this, was that you would not eat anything that came from a grapevine, you would not cut your hair, and you would not be in the presence of a dead body for a certain period of time. And then that period of time was usually something from a couple of months, maybe up to a year or two, and it was all voluntary. It was something you could choose to do or you could not choose to do. But John is given this law, the law of the Nazarite, as the law of his whole life. And unlike Samson, who also was given this law for his whole life, John the Baptist embraced these rules. He did not break them. Samson broke them many times. Uh, But John did not. And so what that meant for John is that he was an outcast. He essentially had to live on the margins of society his entire life. We're not told what his childhood was like, but it couldn't have been much of a childhood. Hey, do you want to come over to uh, Aminadab's house for a birthday party? No, I can't come because the cake is made with raisins. He also, uh, his parents, as you know from the, the gospel story, were very old when he was born. And so, we assume, uh, John left the house and went to live in the desert, which we're told that he did, because he was afraid of breaking his vow. As he got older, his parents uh, were into their very old age. And no doubt, he was afraid that at some point, whether he tried to or not, he would be in the presence of a dead body which he was not allowed to do, ever. So, at a very young age, we don't know what age, but 13 is a good guess. 13 is a good guess because this is the age when uh, Jewish boys became officially men. So we'll say at the age of 13, John left home, and he went to live in the wilderness all by himself. He seems to have taken the law of the Nazarite even a step further when he was in the wilderness. Not only did he not go into the presence of a dead human body, but he's even given up eating meat. He won't even be in the presence of a dead animal. He only eats locusts, so grasshoppers that have entered their winged flight stage, and wild honey. 
Now, what does that mean if he eats wild honey? We see that in the desert, John does a number of things that we would think of as as sort of self-punishment. He does things to physically hurt himself, which, again, seems very strange to us. And he does this because of the sin of Israel, the sin of his people that he sees that they don't see. He wears a shirt that is made of camel's hair. And this is a very traditional thing for ascetics, people who go out into the wilderness and do weird things to themselves in the ancient world, to wear a hair shirt. And the purpose of wearing this shirt is that it will rub your skin raw. So it would hurt all the time. So this is what he's wearing. You wear it with the camel's hair, the really rough part. It almost feels like a, you know, a, a stiff, stiff hair brush. You wear that on the inside. And then he ate wild honey. Well, what does that mean? If he ate wild honey, he had to break into bees' nests, didn't he? Possibly he smoked out the bees first, but he sure didn't have a nice suit uh, like many beekeepers would have today. And we assume, because of the kind of person he was, that this is another means for him to sort of uh, take into himself the punishment for the sin of his people, to visibly and physically represent the grief that he had at what he saw. And so he stays in the wilderness until he's 30 years old. So I'm going to say that for at least 15 years, John the Baptist was just alone. Can you imagine? 15 years alone. And then it says that the word of God came to him. I've mentioned before that sometimes when we're seeking God's will, we need to be persistent, right? He had been praying, no job, no vacations, for 15 years. And then finally the word of God came to him. That's a long time to wait. That's a long time to wait. But the word of God came to him, and then he began to preach. Now, He couldn't have known anyone. He didn't go to a synagogue or anything like that. We assume he just began shouting out his message wherever he could find people. Now at this time, there had not been in the nation of Israel a prophet for a long time. And by a long time, I mean 400 years there had not been a prophet. So when John began to speak and people realized that he looked like a prophet, that is, he looked kind of nuts, he had gigantic dreadlocks because he could never uh, cut his hair and probably didn't have a comb, he wore this camel's hair shirt, ate weird food. This is a prophet, people said. And so thousands of people began making a journey into the wilderness, into the desert regions, to hear what this guy had to say. 
John's life, all of these things that he did were made, uh, were, were arranged by God to build a highway for us to see Jesus. To build a way that we could see Jesus. He was to make all of the roads, the roads that are twisting and that you can't see around the corners, he was to make them all straight so that we could see where we were going. John preached for a few years, and lots of people came to him, and he told them to be baptized, and he baptized them in the Jordan River. And then uh, Jesus came to him, of course. Uh, you know that story. And he baptized Jesus. This is the man that baptized the Son of God. And then he decided to say something against the king of the region, actually the Tetrarch, as we heard earlier, Herod Antipas. And he decided to tell Herod that it was actually not a good thing for Herod to uh, steal his brother's wife, essentially. And so they arrested him, they locked him up in jail, and then after a few months, they cut his head off. And that was the end of the earthly life of John the Baptist. Think for a second at this point, what kind of a perspective on life John must have had. I'm so glad, aren't you, that my calling and your calling from God are not like the calling that John had, right? <laughs> Who would want to do this? No friends, essentially no family, no vacations, no job, except for his purpose in preaching that he had to wait for 15 years to do. No, nothing. His life was just prayer and waiting for God to answer him. A whole life devoted to speaking just one word. A whole life devoted to speaking just one word. But because John had this unique perspective that no one else had, he saw the world in a way that no one else did. While everyone else was asleep to the things that were wrong in the world, to the sin that was in their own lives, to John it was as clear as the bright morning sun what was wrong in the world. It was obvious to him. And so he was able to speak this, wor this word that God had given him with crystal clarity. And the word, of course, is repent. Let me read this section again just because I love it. I have to confess to you now that I love John the Baptist. I don't know if you do. Maybe that makes me strange. But I really, really love him. In verse 7 in chapter 3, I'm going to read this paragraph again. The crowds were coming out to him. He'd been baptizing them. And this is what he says to them, all right? We say, welcome, come to our church. We love you. You're so great. We're glad that you're here. Here's what John said to the people who came to see him. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, 
You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. (sighs) John was something else. I don't know exactly what tone of voice he said this in, uh, but it probably wasn't as nice as I just read it. John the Baptist was coming to wreck everyone's party. Now, the first thing that he says, uh, I want to spend a minute on that. He says to the crowds, he calls them a brood of vipers. And here we have another interesting word that we use in church. Uh, We've translated uh, this, this part of the Bible with this word, but probably we don't use the word brood in everyday conversation. How many of you would say you know what a brood is? You'd be able to give a definition if I called you up right now. I won't do that. A brood of vipers this means a viper's nest, right? So a group of little snakes that have just hatched. Now this is important that we understand exactly what he's saying to them. When they come out, he's not just saying to them, you guys are a bunch of jerks. That's not what he's saying. He's not just trying to insult them. He's telling them something that is very clear to him that's not clear to them. He's telling them that they're like a bunch of little baby snakes that have just hatched. Now, what does a snake represent in the Bible? A snake represents Satan. A snake represents the devil, the evil one. So what he's telling them is that they are like a whole bunch of little devils, little baby Satans. Okay? They are like the children of Satan, which, interestingly enough, is what Jesus calls these same people later on in the Gospel of John, sons and daughters of Satan. What does it mean? Again, it's not just a way to insult them. What he's saying, I believe, is that they think everything is okay. These people in first century Israel thought their lives were okay. And they thought that the world, even though there were some things wrong with the world, was for the most part okay. But John is saying, no, it's not. Because they thought their lives were mostly okay, they were not actively opposing evil. They had gotten used to it. The world in those days was very corrupt. Evil was rampant everywhere. There was oppression from the Romans and from their own leaders. But people had gotten used to that. They decided just to put on a good smile, a good face, a brave face, and tackle life as best they could. 
We can't change the fact that the Romans are in charge and oppressing us. We can't change the fact that our leaders are corrupt. We can't change the fact that people are awful toward each other. So we'll just take the best things in life and we'll try to enjoy what we can. That, I think, was the general attitude. And John's message is that if that's your attitude and you have stopped opposing what's evil, then you have become exactly what Satan wants you to become. You have become a child of the enemy by not opposing him. Whoever is not with me is against me. Those are the words that Jesus would speak later. So this is the second part. John's message, repent. You people, those people, us here today, we are a brood of vipers, even if we don't think that we are. Even if we don't feel like it. Wow. Not going to make any friends this morning. But at least I have some who will probably stand by me. John didn't have any. The third part, John's message uh, in the second half of that paragraph that I read, the axe is at the root of the trees. His message to the people who came out was that they were in immediate danger of destruction. They were in immediate danger of of destruction, even though, again, they didn't feel like it or sense it. Because they had stopped actively opposing the enemy, they were one with the enemy. And God was about to come into the world and destroy the enemy so that all those who were with him, with the evil one, not opposing him, would be destroyed along with him. This was his message. This is what it means. The axe is already at the root of the tree. If the tree is not actively producing what's good, it's going to be taken out of the garden, even though the tree doesn't look like a weed, even though it doesn't look like something that's evil. If it's not actively producing what's good, it's going to be cut down. I went to my dad's house in southern Oregon this summer, and he, he was building a fence for his horses. He has a lot of horses now. This is his new thing in his semi-retirement. And my kids were there, and he was building this fence out of trees from his own property. It was kind of a rough fence. There are these southern Oregon oaks, if you've ever driven through on your way down. They're everywhere once you get about halfway down through the state. And so to impress the boys, he got out his chainsaw and he said, oh, check this out. I'm going to cut down a couple trees here for you. And just as I stood watching him and my boys, super impressed by their grandfather cutting down some trees, you know, being the introspective person that I am, I was philosophizing about the trees. And I thought, here these trees have stood for I don't know how long. Probably, they weren't huge, probably 30 years, something like that. 
40 years. And the chainsaw was sitting next to the tree before he started it up. And I thought, the trees are about to die. They've been here for 30 or 40 years, and like that, they're going to be chopped down so fast, and they have no idea. And they have no idea. And that is the message, not that I am bringing today, but that John brought in his day, that the axe is already at the root of the tree. So these three things, John's perspective on life, that he was able to build this highway so that people could see Jesus just by the way that he lived. That he's saying if we don't oppose evil, we are already one with it. If we have become complacent. And that if that's the case, then destruction is already hanging over our heads. This was the message of the life of John the Baptist. And man, what a downer. His main word that he spoke over and over again was repent. And this is what I would like us to consider this morning. At the end of 2012, as many of us, I hope, because it's a great practice, will be thinking about New Year's resolutions, ways that we can make ourselves better in the coming year. At this time when we're so happy or we feel like the world is really pretty good, the gospel brings in this message that we must repent. I've heard a lot of different definitions of the word repent, and I really haven't been able to get my head around any of them. I've heard people say that it means to turn around, which the Latin word uh, that repent comes from does. I've heard people say that it means to change your mind, to change your thinking, which is what the Greek word that's translated here means. But I've never been able to wrap my head around what those things actually mean for me. So I'm going to give you a little bit different definition of repent today. Repent from John the Baptist. What repenting means, repentance, is it means to accept that life is not okay, that things are not okay. It means to accept that something is actually wrong and needs to change. We need to accept this in the world, not just say that all the things we hear about on the news, terrible things, that those things, they just are and we can't do anything about them. No, we can't accept that. We need to not accept this in our families. How many of you were at family gatherings over the past week, two weeks, where there were deep family issues? Family issues that have gone back who knows how long, maybe forever. We need to not just say that those are okay, that that's just the way it is, and we can't do anything about it. Repentance means to believe that something is wrong and then to oppose it. And we need to not just say this about ourselves, 
is we become so blind over the years to the things that we do wrong, making excuses for them, or admitting that they're wrong, but not really believing that we can change them, not really trying to change them. Repentance means we need to recognize the things that are wrong in our lives and then oppose them. This is what it means to repent. John the Baptist comes to us a crazy-haired, wild-eyed maniac right after Christmas and says, my friends, you need to repent. You need to look at the world and realize that something is wrong. If you don't, you will not be able to come to Jesus. We've been able to witness this morning Ian's baptism, which was amazing, a gift from God. No one can come to Jesus unless they first repent, unless they first recognize what is wrong. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, Luke tells us that there was a whole crowd in front of Jesus. And many of them, when they heard his words, believed. And many of them, when they heard his words, did not believe. And the ones who believed, Luke says, are the ones who had received the baptism of John. And the ones who did not believe are the ones who had rejected it. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, our Father, please have mercy on us. Please help us to see what's wrong in the world, in our families, and in our lives. Help us to have faith that through Jesus and the power of your Spirit, we can overcome these things. And help us to have the will to stand against what is evil in 2013. Amen.